Hello, this is Philip Schoenfeld, Editor-in-Chief of Evidence-Based GI. And on today's podcast, I'm joined by Jamie Kanukin, Senior Associate Consultant in Gastroenterology at the Mayo Clinic, as well as being an IBD specialist. We'll be reviewing her summary, Upadacinatib, a selective JAK1 inhibitor for moderate to severe ulcerative colitis, adjusting the top-down treatment algorithm for UC. And this is reviewing the landmark phase three double-blind RCTs about using upadacinatib for induction of remission for moderately to severe active UC and maintenance of remission that was published in The Lancet in 2022. Welcome, Dr. Knukin, and and let's talk first a little bit about why this is such an important topic. Hey, thanks, Dr. Schoenfeld. Good to see you again. Um, I'm excited to be here and talk about this topic as this was uh, a landmark paper that was published uh, just earlier this year. As we know, inflammatory bowel disease is a challenging and complex immune-mediated condition and has an incredible expanding landscape of treatment options, which is pretty incredible for our patients and our ability to treat them, especially if they haven't responded to previous therapies. But I think what's most notable is this recent approval in early 2022 for a for ulcerative colitis. And this, while this treatment is not first in class, for JAK inhibition, and we'll talk a little bit about that, I'm sure, later, it can offer several advantages over the non-selective JAK inhibitor, tofacitinib. Say that 10 times fast. I usually don't interrupt this early in a podcast, but let me just say for our listeners, upadacinatib, which I'm probably mispronouncing, I think we're just going to call upa, or we can also refer to it by its trade name, Rinvoke, and tofacinatib, which again, I'm probably mispronouncing, maybe better known to some of our listeners as Zeljans, which is its trade name also. So if you hear UPA or Rinvoke, that's, that's referencing Upadacinatib. I think that's helpful. So that way it saves us some, some uh, tongue tied throughout the, the discussion. So as you were saying though, it's really exciting because now we have these small molecule agents that inhibit uh, the JAK1 uh, excuse me, the jack portion of the immune-mediated system, specifically both Zeljans and UPA or Rinvoke for moderate to severe UC. And again, you were saying how these are the landmark RCTs assessing it. Yeah, it's, it's exciting to see this in print because it makes it accessible to our, our patients. Uh, you know, as, as you know, these therapies have been approved with across other indications and several of us have used them prior to the approval, but now being able to have approval by the FDA to be able to use them in, in the right patient has been, been really helpful in the last several months. And I think that's going to be a big part of our discussion beyond simply saying what this study showed which is trying to figure out a little bit better among all the different biologics and now these small molecule agents, how we determine what patients with ulcerative colitis should get different biologics or different small molecules. I know that's a confusing issue for me in my own practice. Definitely. And, uh, you know, even as somebody who does this, you know, every day and, and has the luxury of seeing only patients with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, I think 
a, a lot of even IBD specialists struggle with the positioning of therapies. And really, I think the most important take home is, is that there isn't a one size fits all approach. We really have to um, adapt our, our discussions to the patient and maybe some comorbidities that they might have or extra intestinal symptoms they might have importance to talk to them about what their desires are, uh, what, you know, what their patient preference is, you know, thinking through the menu of therapies that we now have, what, what, what they like to be on. And of course, we can't forget the elephant in the room, which is that somebody has to pay for it. And unfortunately, insurance companies still sit and have a big seat at the table because, you know, ultimately we have to be able to put patients on therapies that are, that are approved, but also are, are are paid for by by somebody. Absolutely. And as we'll discuss later on, fortunately, it seems like UPA or Invoke tends to be covered pretty well by insurance as long as we use it in the right patients who've already failed an anti-TNF agent. But before we talk about the actual study, I know we were going to talk a little bit about just this group agents like Zeljans or UPA that are JAK inhibitors. And do you want to just discuss a little bit more, you know, what's the importance of this new class? Of course. Um, so, you know, this is, so um, the JAK inhibition, which uh, falls under the small molecules, as opposed to, you know, what uh, our listeners may be familiar with many of the biologic therapies approved for the treatment of ulcerative colitis. Um, but there are several small molecules now uh, that have come to market, which can offer some advantages over patients that are unable to take biologic therapies for, for whatever reason that might be, or have uh, shown loss of response in the past due to anti-drug antibody, or have shown um, high levels of immunogenicity to previous biologics, maybe a small molecule might be a better option for them. So there are a couple of different classes. Um, there's the S1P class in the form of Ozanamod or Zaposia. And then of course, you, we touched on the JAK inhibition. So there's the um, non-selective JAK inhibitor, tofacitinib or Zeljans, and then now this upadacitinib uh, Rinvoke, uh, which is a more selective JAK1 inhibitor, which may be able to offer some potential benefits in treating patients with ulcerative colitis. And, and I'm excited to, to chat with you uh, a little bit later about some of the findings in, in the clinical trial program, certainly the level of clinical remission that we saw in these patients. Sure. And I think it really deserves reemphasis that officially uh, Borinvoke is approved for patients who have already tried anti-TNF agents and have either had side effects or haven't had an adequate response or as you said, may have developed immunogenicity, and that certainly there wouldn't be the same concerns with immunogenicity with a small molecule like UPA or Invoke. So that's, so that's going to be a optimal patient to use this in. And again, it works on a different blockade of the immune-mediated system. Now, Zeljans is non-selective, whereas UPA is a selective JAK1 inhibitor. Why is that important? Why might that be helpful? Yeah, I mean, I uh, I think so. As you said, Zeljans targets um, both JAK1, 2, and 3, so more of a pan-JAK or non-selective JAK inhibitor, whereas Renvoke selectively targets JAK1, which then minimizes JAK2 inhibition, um, which is, is thought to be really the, the JAK that... Uh, 
the jack that's been associated with an increased platelet count and thrombosis um, and potentially may confer some of the reason why the FDA changed the label for Zeljans back in 2019 to include this what we call fail first, which is exposure to anti-TNF therapy. Um, so I think in the right patient um, that the overall safety concerns that were raised um, in, in patients that weren't even ulcerative colitis or Crohn's patients, but actually patients with rheumatoid arthritis that were greater than 50 years old in a post-marketing analysis where they, they were looking to follow them to look for adverse events like cardiovascular risk factors, venous thromboembolism, infections, and cancers. Um, and in this population, they did see that there was, there was an increased risk in rheumatoid arthritis patients for uh, venous thromboembolism or major adverse cardiovascular events or MACE, uh, as, as you may hear us talk through. But I think what's notable, uh, you know, when we talk about safety is, well, what about the patients that we're treating? So I think that's important to note that this safety, you know, signal happened in RA patients. But when they looked at follow-up of, I think, almost seven to eight years we have now um, in patients on Zeljans, they, they haven't seen that same safety signal and overall low rates of uh, venous thromboembolism or MACE rates in the in the safety follow-up studies in patients with ulcerative colitis. So we haven't seen the same concerns necessarily in our patients. And then of course, well, uh, you know, this, this study that we're highlighting for both the induction and maintenance with Renvoke also did not uh, show uh, an increased risk related to venous thromboembolism or or MACE, um, but it did show an increased risk for um, herpes zoster, which was very well defined in the Zeljans studies as well as the follow-up safety. And, and the nice thing is that it's preventable by vaccination and, and is safe to give vaccination in patients even after they initiate on Renvoke. So very much a preventable adverse event associated with the therapy. But that, you know, I think it's, it's just having an elevated level of caution, certainly not being scared of using these medications that have clear efficacy based on the clinical studies but, you know, using them in the right patients and, and certainly a patient with multiple risk factors, you know, maybe has had multiple blood clots in the past that this might not be the right treatment decision. Although, uh, you know, speaking with colleagues and, and even some in my practice, these patients are often already on anticoagulation. And so, you know, our, many of us would still continue to treat them if this was a very clearly indicated therapy for them because their colon is, is also very important and their quality of life is also very important. So I think we have to weigh those, the benefits of therapy against some of the small risks that we see as part of these clinical trial programs. You know, absolutely. I, you always have to balance the benefits with the risks. And I really like your comment there. Hey, the colon's important too. And, and just to summarize, sure, when Zeljans, a non-selective JAK inhibition agent, was looked at in older rheumatoid arthritis patients with cardiovascular risk factors, there was a signal for cardiovascular events and venous thromboembolism, as well as looking at cancer. When that's been looked at in UC patients, we haven't seen that, but that's what's led to the warning on the label. So that's going to ultimately be part of your discussion with your patients. But gosh, when we consider how effective these agents are for moderate to severe UC in patients, especially that have already failed an anti-TNF agent, I think this is going to be a really important addition to the armamentarium. And, and you know, so having said that, how did... Dr. Denise and, and his colleagues 
look at the efficacy of UPA or Invoke for treating moderate to severe uh, UC in these trials that were published in The Lancet. Yeah, and this was an incredible undertaking. So, you know, congratulations to this group of investigators. Um, and I believe that we were part of the clinical trial program when I was at the University of Michigan enrolling patients for, for these studies. But they, you know, they really did to assess induction of remission, which was defined um, as clinical remission at week eight. They did two multi-center, double-blinded, placebo-controlled, randomized studies, but they were international. So really we have patients from all over the world. And then they did a follow-up single multi-center international double-blinded placebo-controlled maintenance study that looked at outcomes at at 52 weeks. They included adult patients with moderate to severe ulcerative colitis who had previously been exposed and and had been um, either inadequate response to 5-ASAs, steroids, uh, immunosuppressant therapies, or biologics. So it's important for our listeners to know that this was not an entirely bio-experienced group. Majority of them had been exposed and experienced to biologics, but not everyone in the group. So certainly, given that we have to fail first on TNF, not every patient in the study had been exposed to TNF. The primary endpoint, like I said, they looked at clinical remission, which was defined a little bit differently than we know in some of the other clinical trial programs um, that use uh, usually the full Mayo score. Um, They used the adapted Mayo score, which essentially was the full Mayo score minus the physician global assessment. Um, And they defined that as um, an adapted Mayo score of less than or equal to two. Um, Patients had to have a stool frequency score of less than one. And I think notable is they had no tolerance for rectal bleeding. So they really had a stringent primary endpoint. So patients really had to be feeling really well to, to meet that endpoint. Um, and then um, the uh, um, uh, then the maintenance of remission, they looked at you know similar outcomes at 52 weeks. Now it's important to know, well, I think we'll mainly focus on the importance of the primary endpoints in this study. Um, they did have some uh, secondary endpoints looking at endoscopic remission. Uh, that's an, certainly an important endpoint that we've seen in previous clinical trial programs, as well as this one. And that was defined as an endoscopic scub Mayo score of zero or one. Clinical response, so maybe patients didn't initially meet full remission by week eight, but certainly looking at those patients who had improvement overall And then there's some definitions behind that that you can read in our summary. And then, you know, I think most importantly, what our readers want to know is is the standard safety analysis and what major adverse events did they see, especially those surrounding potential mace or venous thromboembolism and herpes zoster. So just to to reemphasize a couple of points here. So these were classically designed double-blind placebo-controlled RCTs and for the induction of remission trials, they were comparing UPA or Rinvoke at 45 milligrams a day versus placebo for eight weeks and using that adapted Mayo score, which again, just to emphasize to our listeners, that meant you to phrase it a little, a little more straightforward. You pretty much had no rectal bleeding. You had almost complete resolution of loose stools. And you had at most minimal endoscopic evidence of inflammation or normal mucosa, and you couldn't have any friability on scoping. So you're taking patients who had moderately to severe UC and saying, you're pretty much symptom-free with close to normal mucosa in order to be clinical remission. I'm paraphrasing there, but is that about right in terms of of what an adapted Mayo score of zero to two is? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, you're you're recognizing what I think the challenges that we all have when we read these clinical trials and some of these pivotal studies that result um, is they're not always written in ways that, you know, we can take to bedside and, and the clinic to our patients. So, you know, defining what clinical remission means, you know, in, in very lay terms is really helpful. So I, I, I think you did a great job of, you know, summarizing that, which is when we ask patients how they're feeling, I think that, you know, some important things that have been included in, in clinical trial programs is also related to quality of life and and, and maybe urgency, which wasn't wasn't included necessarily in this clinical trial program, but what, what you might start to see in other clinical trial programs is quality of life and urgency, which is actually what patients, even if they have no bleeding, reduced stool frequency urgency is always a really important and sometimes persistent symptom. Um, so it can even make the data a little bit more challenging to interpret in other studies. But this clinical remission is important, and I think it's also important that they then followed that up with endoscopic objective signs of healing to support the the clinical remission. Let's talk about the results for the induction of remission RCTs. They enrolled almost a thousand patients. And as you said, about 50% of them have already failed or been intolerant or developed antibodies to biologics. About 50% had only been previously treated with 5-ASAs or corticosteroids. So how effective was it at providing clinical remission? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when we when we look at previous clinical trial programs and then we can, you know, can compare and it really has been done recently in some network meta-analyses because it's hard to compare when there's not really a robust, well, we have one actually head-to-head study looking at alternative therapies. You know, we have to just look at the, the numbers that were given. So I'm, I'm quite impressed with the, the differences between our clinical remission and, and placebo. So in patients taking Renvoke 45 milligrams uh, versus placebo, in the first clinical trial program, uh, looking at induction, the remission rate was 26% in the treatment group versus 5% in placebo with a delta of 19%. And in the second clinical trial program, there was a clinical remission rate of 34% versus 4% with a delta of 30%. So a little bit higher in that second clinical trial program. And then, you know, beyond induction at eight weeks, they also found maintenance of remission was higher in patients taking two studied doses, a higher dose, 30 milligrams and 15 milligrams, uh, a low lower dose, both of them approved by the FDA for maintenance of remission. So not only did this study show that it was a good induction agent, it, it you know, we even saw higher rates if you, if you allowed patients to continue upwards of 52% in the higher, in the higher dose, and I think 42% in 15 milligrams. So, so it's uh, effective at induction of remission, but also has um, ongoing response with use and then showing durability and persistence of remission at 52 weeks in this, you know, overall sick patient population. Right. Because again, these are moderate to severe UC patients at the onset of the trial, many of whom had already failed a biologic treatment. And again, as you said, you had between 26 to 33% of patients on, on UPA or Invoke getting essentially complete clinical remission. And when they looked at what they called clinical response, meaning at least a reduction of at least two or 30% decrease from baseline, that it was about 73, 74% of patients on UPA or Rinvoke had a clinical response reduction in their symptoms that way. And again, the patients who achieved clinical remission went into the maintenance trial, and you have a couple of doses to use in maintenance. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to what you do in your own practice, but certainly a larger magnitude of benefit than we've seen with other medications and other placebo-controlled trials, 
although you can't really compare them head to head because of some differences in endpoints. But having said this, what do you do in your own practice, recognizing that it looks like it's effective. It's something that you're going to use if somebody can't take an anti-TNF agent because they either didn't get an adequate response or they develop side effects or immunogenicity. And at the same time, recognizing on a safety perspective that there is a boxed warning about these cardiovascular events, even though we didn't see them at all with UPA in these UC trials. How do you do that shared decision-making with your patients in identifying a good patient to use one of these JAK inhibitors? Yeah. I mean, I think it's the million dollar question. So I I think that's important is to always provide our patients that, you know, uh, that are coming in with active symptoms, you know, a full understanding of what's on the menu. What, What can we provide them from a treatment standpoint? And I think it's our jobs as their healthcare providers to really, and, and they often ask, well, what would you pick? Right. Because if you give them five options you know, how do they know what to pick? So I think, uh, I think about patients in a lot of ways is, you know, how, how stable are they? I may have just scoped them and they have moderate to severe disease on their, on their colonoscopy. Uh, are they steroid responsive? Are they steroid refractory? Is this patient sick enough to be in the hospital to help really guide my decisions? Um, we know that this class of therapy and especially the studies that have been done in Zeljans and, and certainly when you look at the clinical trial and, and where you start to see divergence from placebo is that these drugs work fast. So they're fast onset. And I'm sure we're going to start to see where we, you know, consider using these therapies maybe as replacement to steroids and induction situations. But, you know, um, how fast do I need onset of therapy for a patient? What other, you know, extra intestinal symptoms do they have? Um, What does their life look like? Do they travel for work? Are they able, are, you know, are they a a healthcare provider and can they take off two to three hours and sit for an infusion? Or do they have a fear of needles? Are they able to give themselves an injection? Is this somebody that really desires to be on an oral therapy and and the convenience uh, of that option? You know, understanding that these oral therapies go under a specialty pharmacy? What does their insurance coverage look like? What is the out-of-pocket cost going to look like for this patient? Because I can have the best drug available, but if the patient can't afford it or doesn't have access to it because the insurance requires alternative therapies, it's going to make it very challenging to use that. So, you know, I used a lot of uh, JAK inhibition in my practice. Uh, When I was at the University of Michigan, uh, we had studied the use of tofacitinib in Zeljans in the inpatient world, which we'll start to see probably some studies coming out with real world experience of using Renvoke in the inpatient world, given its rapidity of onset. But, you know, who is this patient that I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm recommending for a JAK inhibition? Well, certainly they've been exposed to an anti-TNF. Maybe they're a patient that has, has shown immunogenicity to other biologics, where I'm, I'm concerned about using another biologic that they may uh, potentially form anti-drug antibodies. A patient who has a low albumin level uh, that will have potential high clearance of a biologic therapy, a small molecule in general, it might be a better selective choice. And remember, JAK inhibition isn't the only class within the small molecules that we have. So really, it's it's sort of going through some very important 
things when we talk to patients. It's the efficacy and uh, with the network meta-analyses uh, suggesting and supporting um, the, the superiority, I guess in the best sense of the word, of, of the response and remission that we see with, with Rinvoke. That would put it fairly high up there um, after an anti-TNF therapy. But also when we think about safety and what, um, what comorbidities the patient may have, what other medications they might be taking. And then we think about patient preference. And then I think, again, like I said previously, we always have to consider what our options are from an insurance and access standpoint. Um, the good news is, is that, and, you know, since it's been on the market now, it's not, you know, it, it's the newest on the market, but in ulcerative colitis, but certainly been around for enough time where we're able to get first line access for most of our commercial payers. And so it, it is an option for us to use this after anti-TNF if we believe it's the right choice for the patient and the patient is, is okay with initiating therapy. I think in, in, in my practice, it's important to realize that these therapies, you know, it's not a, a set it and forget it. You know, you have to do some pre-screening labs and make sure that, that this patient doesn't have renal dysfunction or have some baseline lab abnormalities. I certainly want to look at not only LDL, but lipid parameters can change, including HDL. Uh, and so you want to follow those up as well as, you know, standard labs as part of your standard of care. And then of course, herpes zoster was a signal in, in both the non-selective and the selective JAK inhibitors. And so vaccination against herpes Zoster with, with the new recombinant vaccination uh, is important and safe. So that doesn't have to happen prior to initiation, but certainly my goal is within the first week to get patients vaccinated so that it doesn't fall off the top of our list of things to do. There are a lot of important points in what you said there, and I do want to just reemphasize a couple, and I'll start towards your comments towards the end there. You know, I think our listeners need to realize if you're going to use UPA or invoke in a patient with moderate to severe UC who's previously been exposed to an anti-TNF agent that you want to get them vaccinated for herpes zoster, doesn't have to happen prior to initiation, and also vaccinated against the multiple infections that we always should be doing in our IBD patients. And as you said, when you're checking baseline labs, keep in mind in particular to check a baseline lipid parameter because there is a potentially a risk to get an elevation of LDL in these patients. And let me just double check, Jamie, how soon after you start UPA or Invoke, how soon after you start do you recheck lipid parameters? One month, 12 weeks? Yeah, the label says within 12 weeks. So usually we do it at follow-up labs around three months. I think eight to 12 weeks is reasonable. I think that's also a good time period to check in with your patient, although you probably should be checking in clinically with your patient, either with a visit or with using patient-reported outcomes or symptom questionnaires that, that may be generated by your EMR prior to that point to really check in in this moderate to severe patient who's likely very symptomatic to make sure that they're at least in, improving early. We do expect early clinical response and, and some patients even uh, reaching that clinical remission even prior to week eight, but definitely at week eight, checking in with the patient um, because at week eight is where you decide, you know, are you going to maintain on, on a higher dose, which has been approved by the FDA to uh, in more refractory patients or patients that maybe haven't reached that, that 
that remission that you that you see in the clinical trial? Or are you are you going to re- uh, go down to the maintenance dosing of 15 milligrams? I'll tell you in my experience because uh, you know oftentimes when these drugs get approved, we use them in our more refractory patients first because we've been waiting for the new mechanism. They've been steroid dependent. That all of the patients that I have currently on Renvoke, uh, I have maintained at the 30 milligram dosing, and I have I've not yet used it the 15 milligram dosing. But I'll tell you that as we start to use this therapy, and now that it's it's becoming more accessible from an insurance standpoint, we will start to see more of the 45 milligrams than dropping the 15 milligrams in the maintenance phase in patients that maybe don't look on paper as medically refractory or, or have significant uh, you know, treatment experience in the past. I also wanted to reemphasize a point you made earlier, which is the rapid onset of symptom relief that you've seen with this using it in inpatients, and even the potential in the future for this to be a substitute for using steroids in that inpatient moderate to severe UC category. And again, for our listeners, the other differences versus using anti-TNF agents or other biologics is, you know, this is an oral tablet. Some patients may prefer that. And the rapid onset of action in moderate to severe patients who have failed or been intolerant or developed immunogenicity to an anti-TNF agent makes this a good choice as long as you discuss those potential risks with the patient. And again, as you said, ultimately it's got to get covered by insurance, but fortunately so far it looks like UPA is being covered pretty well by insurance as long as you prescribe it in the right patient. Any other final thoughts you want to make sure that our readers understand about this? No, I mean, I think the the biggest take home is to, uh, for our readers that maybe have not had a lot of experience prescribing JAK inhibitors is that, you know, these are, these are excellent drugs with good efficacy. And really, I think uh, we're not doing our patients a service if we don't put these on the menu for them in the right patient, right? So, you know, certainly in a bio-naive patient, there is no role for JAK inhibition uh, based on on the way that the label is written. Um, But in a patient who's previously, you know, been exposed to an anti-TNF, I would hope that when having a a shared decision-making discussion with the patient that you put both JAK inhibitors on the menu and then work with the patient to find out what's covered with insurance. Right now, Zeljans is, is has both once daily and twice daily dosing, whereas Renvoke has has only once daily dosing. So that may make a difference uh, with, with selecting a, a therapy with your patient. And and certainly with looking at network meta-analyses, even though you have to sometimes take that with a, a grain of salt, because it's really hard to compare across clinical trials that all have different primary outcomes, right? And and different secondary outcomes. But, you know, certainly the, there's been two recent ones published that really highlight the efficacy potential with Renvoke, uh, especially in ulcerative colitis. I'm looking forward to, to seeing the published data for Renvoke with Crohn's disease, because as you know, Zeljans did not meet any of the, the endpoints with, with Crohn's disease. So I, I think there's a lot of promise for its use side of ulcerative colitis when it gets published and then ultimately reviewed by the FDA. And then I'm looking forward to the open label safety post-marketing analysis for, for this particular drug and, and hope that it, it shows exactly what we saw in Zeljans, which is that it's a safe therapy with overall low incidence of 
of uh, VTEs and MACE events. And of course, you know, I think all of us are, are looking forward to, you know, more head-to-head studies, uh, you know, helping us position therapies. But I think where the future of this field is going is more personalization in medicine, where, where we pick the right therapy for the right patient up front, because we have biomarkers that help guide us in making those decisions, which is obviously not how we're practicing right now. So I think it's an exciting time to be a gastroenterologist and, of course, an exciting time to be treating patients um, with so many uh, tools in our toolbox, which when I was a fellow, which wasn't that long ago, you know, certainly not nearly as many uh, opportunities and, and therapies that we have now. So I think it's really important to emphasize to our listeners to be willing to step up therapy, that we all have a lot of sick UC patients, and we're in an era where we have more options. And I'm hopeful that our colleagues will be willing to step up therapy when the standards of immunomodulators and using an anti-TNF agent aren't working, hey, we've got other options now. Talk about it with your patients. And and it's something that's going to be an exciting field to continue to follow. So thanks so much for joining us today, Jamie. I'm sure our listeners are really grateful for all the terrific information. Yeah, and, and I applaud you on your on your new journal. And I think I've read some of the stuff that's come out. And so I'm it's certainly on my on my reading list. So I, I hope that it continues to uh, provide excellent education and really kind of dissecting some of these challenging studies and, and providing real real world context to them. So congratulations on on your on your exciting adventure. Well, thanks, Jamie. I appreciate it.